0: Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. It's a a bit of a three-week conversation more than a series on on the human side of what it means to be a church. Um, How many of you guys know that, that Jesus broke it down and made it really, really simple for us, didn't he? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Simple enough, right? I don't think anybody here disagrees with that, but I think it can be tough sometimes because uh, our neighbors and us, we're, we're human beings, right? Anybody else here perfect? Am I talking to humans today or robots? I'd love to be talking to some humans today. Let me hear you if you're out there. All right, okay, good. Good. Yeah, we're human. We're not perfect, and so we wanted to take just a couple of weeks before we lead into Easter season and talk about what it means to be good neighbors. How's that sound? Is that okay with you? So Isaiah did a fantastic job kicking us off last week. I love what he shared with us about living in humility. You know, embodying that from Romans 12, he shared with us, and also from uh, First Peter, he talked about how we're meant to be different. You guys believe it? We're meant to live differently. Peter says we're meant to be aliens and strangers in this world. We're meant to live by a different standard. And I just wanna pick up where Isaiah left off last week. He really did a great job of setting us up and and dig a little bit deeper because I can get away with saying things that he can't get away with saying. So are you guys ready for the word? I gotta say, you can't give Pastor Ryan multiple weeks to prepare for something. Uh, They say every page of notes is like five, five minutes or so, so I got 42 pages of notes this morning and we'll be here until Tuesday. Now, all jokes aside, though, I love when you can feel a current running through Scripture. And what I mean by that is when you can feel the themes. It doesn't matter if it's Peter speaking or Paul. It doesn't matter if it's the words of Jesus himself, the stories he tells, or or a lesson that he lived out in front of us. I love when you can sense in Scripture that all of it is flowing in the same direction and calling us to the same lifestyle, to be aliens and strangers in this world. So I want to say this is a message for Mondays, this isn't a message necessarily for today. This is a message for Mondays. Anybody here like it when the messages are applicable in our lives on Mondays? You know, tomorrow morning I'll be passing along some notes on, on Facebook, some things to just chew on deeper in this topic. It'll probably happen right about the time that your coworker strikes up the weekend gossip, or maybe your boss waddles in and says the words performance review. You know, because we need messages for Mondays. We need messages for those moments that remind us, oh, I don't feel like uh, being Christ to this person right now. I'm I'm tempted to do something very different, because we're all human beings. So how many of you can remember a a, a fight that you've had with somebody? I mean, a big, like, full-on, gloves-off, here-we-go rumble that you've had with somebody. It's probably somebody close to you. Anybody can remember, like, just a a war of the words or maybe a war of the minds that you've had with somebody you love? Uh, Yeah, it's it's crazy how it happens in our lives, And, and oftentimes it starts really, really innocently, doesn't it? You know, when you get into some pretty bad battles with people, it starts so innocently. You're like, you know, how do we get from a discussion on how we fold socks to just tearing apart each other's families? How did that escalate so quickly? I'm confused. See, I remember for me, I was in college, and I, I love my college roommate, but we got in an argument over a stupid game that we were playing. I mean, it was stupid, and I still remember it to this day because it turned into just like this week-long debacle where we just were just so angry at each other. I'm like, how does this happen to us? But we're human, right? We're so human. Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 18, 19 says this. It says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. You know, when you're in that moment, you're like, I can't even stand to look at him." How easy it is for us to be that, that, that person is just like an unyielding city, a strong city. See, the human tendency that we all have in us, every last one of us, if you're here and you're, you have a pulse today, You have a tendency towards strife with one another. It's it's been with us since the beginning. It's a tale as old as time. I want to just look really quickly. If you turn with me to Genesis, you know, right at the beginning, we see it starts with this moment, Genesis 3, the fall of man. We all know the story of the apple or fruit or whatever it was. Genesis 3 starts right at the beginning. It says this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from all the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. I just want to stop there, because here's the thing that I see. We're talking about how these arguments escalate. We're talking about how to be good neighbors with one another, and I think that you know, we see a very human tendency in Adam and Eve at this moment. And I want to explore it a little bit today. I want to talk into when we engage the argument because that's where it starts. Would you pray with me? Father, we come with grateful hearts to your word today. There is nothing like your word in our lives. It produces such good fruit in us. And God, we just, we come with open and grateful hearts because we get to do this. We get to study your word. We get to learn of you. We get to feel the current pulling us deeper into love with you, we get to hear the words of your spirit speaking directly into our situations, into our Mondays and Tuesdays. Father, we pray that you'd be present with us and illuminate from your word so much for us today. That every person who sets foot in here, Lord, would leave just a little bit closer to you and changed for you in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. So here's what I want to point out. Did you ever really read this section and realize that the question that the servant asked is just like incredibly off base? I think so many times we gloss over this, but this is what he actually asked. He said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I'm like, that's a little bit different than what I expected actually. As you read this again and again, you're like, no, that, that, that's not right at all. In fact, that's so far off base, why do they even entertain the argument? You know, he's basically asking, you know, did God tell you you have to starve yourselves? You know. No, we can eat from anything. We have such freedom. And Adam and Eve actually take this moment right here when the door is open and they engage the argument. You know, maybe this is a message for another time, but sin in our lives, strife in our lives, arguments that we have, these dumb things, they often occur right at the moment when the argument's there and we take the opportunity to defend our right, to tell you where you're wrong. You know, sin in our lives, it happens in those moments where we we start to flirt with it, doesn't it? It's it's when we convince ourselves that we can play with fire. We, we want to come in and, and defend our rights. Maybe it's we we convince ourselves we can have that just one drink or you know we can let our eyes linger lustfully for just a moment and it won't hurt anything. This is how sin starts in us. We can flirt with that untruth because we need to we need to just see, you know, we have control. But in this moment, Adam and Eve, they choose to engage in an argument that really wasn't even worth their time. He was so far off base, and I find myself thinking, you know, what if? What if they didn't take the bait? What would it look like for you and me today, right? What if? John Bevere calls it the bait of Satan. It's trapped for us, oftentimes. So many times, there's so many arguments that we could fight. How many of you guys know that the world is full of arguments that we could argue out? So many times the problem starts right here when we say, you know what, I got to do something about this. Engaging the argument is a problem because we live in a world that considers arguing a virtue. We really do. You know, we're told from a young age, never back down from a fight, never back down. Don't show weakness. Stand your ground, don't give up the ship. It's the constant refrain of our generation is, you know, we got to fight for our right, right? We live in the Twitter war era, don't we? I see Patrick laughing. No, I'm not talking about, what is that, fight for your right to party? Yeah, okay. We're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. But we do. That's the world that we live in. And it is the Twitter war era. It's so easy for us to snipe each other from behind our keyboards or our cell phones, maybe, you know, to right every wrong from the comfort of our couch. That's the era we live in. It's so easy, but it's so, so dangerous for us to flirt with these arguments. It's so dangerous for us to take up the popular refrain of our generation, which is, I have been wronged, I am owed. That is not the way that we're called to live. As we saw in 1 Peter 2 last week, we're called to be aliens and strangers. We're called to live such good lives that when, not if, but when people speak out against us, that they see the good behavior, they see the way we live our lives, and they glorify our Father in heaven. That's what Peter says. Peter says, We're called to live differently. Paul is constantly telling his apprentices stuff like this. He's he's telling them to watch out. Listen to this. I'm going to rattle some off here. 2 Timothy 2.16, he says, avoid godless chatter. 2 Timothy 2.23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Titus 3.9, a different uh, apprentice of his, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels. What's Paul saying? He's saying, stop comparing Stop engaging in arguing for argument's sake. Subvert the urge that keeps our culture constantly at each other's throats. That's what we're called to. See, we're talking about being good neighbors, and I think that the very first step we got to realize is that there's plenty of battles to fight out there, but we're not called to fight all the battles. We're called not to engage the argument. We're called to kill the argument because there's a better there's a better gain to be earned from living a little bit differently. Peter takes it even further. Yeah, actually, he says, submit to one another. Ooh, how we hate the word submit? We hate it, don't we? I don't want to be ruled over by anybody. I don't want to come under the authority of anything. I don't even like tax season. Is it too real? It's too real. It's too real for me right now. It's too real for me. Submission, giving up our rights to fight back. How offensive is that to our culture in the way that a lot of us are raised? It reminds me of being a kid. I'm fighting with my brothers. My mom's here today, and she could probably verify and corroborate this story. If I ever got in a fight with my brothers, and, you know, you just keep going at each other, going at each other, my dad had a way of putting an end to it. He would literally just say, drop it, and that was it. That meant end of story. If you keep going, there's going to be a lot worse coming for you, but it is over now. There is no more argument. I don't want to hear your side of the story. It's over. And he basically was forcing us to submit to one another, forcing us to to put it aside, I think he knew that if we could calm town for long enough, we would realize that we had better intentions. But Jesus was constantly living in this way as well, wasn't he? He was ignoring foolish arguments. How many times did the Pharisees try to bait him with a foolish argument? He just completely blew past it. It's incredible when we look at the story of Christ. And like in John four, we're gonna look briefly at a story of him with what I like to call a bad Samaritan, the woman at the well in John four. Jesus intentionally creates a situation which is ripe for a quarrel. And it even threatens to go there throughout his conversation with this lady, but he models something a little bit different for us. So he was headed from Judea in the south to uh, Galilee in the north, and there were options of how to go there. You know, sometimes Jews would go around Samaria because they did not get along with the Samaritans. But Jesus chose. It says at the beginning, it says he had to go through Samaria. He chose. He made a choice to go through. Samaritan and Jews, they were incredibly hostile to one another. That's the background of this story. They held on to arguments against each other for generations, literally generations. They defiled each other's places of worship. You know, they really, really hated each other. Um, And Jesus approaches this woman at the well, and he approaches her, not the way of his culture. He approaches her to destroy the arguments. She was a woman and a Samaritan. It was absolutely unthinkable that he would have a conversation with her. But let's pick it up in John chapter four. We're gonna look at verses seven, through 26, John chapter 4, it says this. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That's a bit of an understatement, actually. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and his herds. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water. Welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then she changes here and says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes to the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming called Christ. He's coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything else to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. I who speak to you am He. You see, Jesus came into this situation and he did it on purpose. And there's, there's so much to this story that we could unpack over weeks and weeks and weeks. But what I want us to see is the constant pull back towards the quarrel that she has in this. You know, she 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 comes at him and says, You know what? in the midst of you trying to speak into my life, I'm gonna cut it off and I'm gonna say, you know what, here's the barrier though. This is the wall that comes up between us as Samaritans and Jews. You say this, we say this. And even when he tries to explain to her something so deep, she puts up the wall again and says, you know what, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell me. It's okay, I'll take it from here, I got it. You know, and I think a lot of times we can be like that too. The problem was that Jesus came bringing forgiveness. Jesus came bringing healing for her, but she she didn't go there with him, she didn't let him. Go there, at least not yet. We've all been there though. As soon as God puts a finger on the things that are difficult in our lives, it's don't touch my sin, don't point out my stronghold. We've all taken steps to hide sometimes. We've got to realize that this woman was coming to the well. It says earlier in the passage this is the sixth hour. Sixth hour was right in the heat of the day. It was the dumbest time to go to the well, but she was there on purpose because of this weight of her shame. The weight of her shame. She was hiding. She was hiding because she had a reputation. She was ashamed. And Jesus knows this. He chooses to engage with her. And he saw the man-made shame and struggle in her life, and he ignored the defensiveness and the arguments, and there's a great, great reward that comes from this conversation because he overcame with truth and grace. You know, in this moment, the, the argument threatened multiple times. She brings it back up. She brings it back up, but he continues to break the rules to show love. I want us to see that Jesus' mode of operating, whether it's in this story or all throughout his ministry, was to not engage the argument, but instead to break the rules to show love. To set aside prejudice, like in this situation. He creates a situation that's so full of prejudice, so full of cultural no-nos. This woman, with all of her issues and all of her defensiveness, becomes the first person in the Gospels that Jesus reveals himself to as the Messiah. Wow. See, I don't know what issues you might be facing that might keep you from being open with people, because we all have them in our lives. We all do. I don't know if you're scared to be known exactly as you are, or if there's an age-old argument between you and somebody that you love going on in your life, but look at Jesus in this moment. He wants to wipe all that away. He puts aside prejudice. He goes where nobody would even think to go to bring truth and hope. And we need to follow his example because we're called to live for more. We're called to live for more, and there's so many issues that get in the way because we simply want to argue it out. We simply want to remember, you know what, I think I know what you did to me, and I, thank you very much, but I don't want to talk to you. We need to kill the argument, and we need to put aside our cultural pre- prejudice. First John 4.20 says it like this, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. Anybody say, ouch, right? Does that hurt anybody else? That hurts me. See, we're commanded to love one another. It's not an option. We can, can we get really honest for a minute? Is it okay to get honest in church? You see, I think the problem comes most often when we try and fix each other, right? It comes when we try and fix each other. So many times, we try to take up the role that only God can play in each other's lives and teach each other how to be better. And it comes across that we're just condemning each other, doesn't it? It's really, really hard. See, our role is to love people and to point them to Jesus. And it doesn't matter if that's with your child, with your spouse, with your friend, with your neighbor. If we're wanting to be serious about being good neighbors, we gotta follow Jesus' lead. We gotta kill the arguments and love on some people. We gotta love on some people. Even Jesus in this moment he talks about the sin that the woman has in her life, but he does not condemn her. He does not condemn her. He shows her love. I want to tell you this story from a missionary group. It says that when large numbers of the Dani people in Irian Jaya came to faith in Jesus Christ during the 1960s, missionaries didn't require them to sing Western songs, and they didn't require them to wear Western clothes. In fact, it was typical for the Dani people to only wear, cover their privates up with a gourd. You know, that would make a splash in our churches nowadays, Right? See, ironically, when the Danny people had been growing in the word and they began to reach out to the other tribes around them that were nothing at all, they wanted them to cover their nakedness and they wanted them to sing songs in the Dani language. Isn't it so strange how that's just bred into us? I want to make people like me. I want to fix this. I want to teach you how you can be better. And it's just something that we inherit. And I think that part of the problem that we have is that we try to fix each other all the time. It's in our nature since the fall. When we first engaged the argument, and we first learned what shame was, we first learned how to hide from each other, we've been seeking ways of covering our nakedness and shaming others into to do it as well. See, like the woman at the well in the heat of the day because of her shame, Jesus comes to us with love as well. And he ignores the prejudice, he ignores the cultural differences. He's the only person who can actually heal that shame. And he isn't soft on sin, but he's full of forgiveness. He's full of forgiveness. And, and here's what it comes down to. The heart of the issue is forgiveness. The heart of the issue is forgiveness because forgiveness is the only thing that can demolish shame in our lives. It can demolish shame. You see, the story of the, the Danny people reminded me of Matthew 18. I want to read it to you in the message version. There's a story that Jesus tells about forgiveness. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21 in the message, it says, at that point... Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I need to forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Why don't you try 70 times seven? He's making a point here. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay up, so the king ordered the man along with his wife, children, and goods to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, Give me a chance, and I'll pay it all back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room than he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10. He seized him by the throat and demanded, Pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, Give me a chance, and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. The other servants saw what was going on. They were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned that man and said, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be able, shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was so furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my Father in Heaven is going to do to each of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. Again, ouch, right? See, human nature is this. Human nature says, I'll forgive you when you meet my conditions. I'll forgive you when you look like me and you agree that you were completely wrong and that I am perfect. <laughs> that's what our human nature says. But that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to forgive people when somebody's wronged us, is it? Come on, we can be real here. We're talking about being good neighbors, but sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes we wound each other, even in church. Sometimes we do things which upset each other. C.S. Lewis said it like this Everybody says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something to forgive. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. See, how can we hold on to offenses? with one another when we've been so freely forgiven. That's what this story means. We have experienced forgiveness unlike anything we deserve. So, so much greater than anything we deserve. So I love what Dominic says all the time, brother. You say it to me, I hear you say it all the time. You say, I leave it to God. Anybody else heard him say this? I leave it to God, I leave it to God. To truer words were never spoken, not only of you, but for us as well, I leave it to God. It's so important and that right there is the secret. There's a surrender that needs to take place in our hearts. There's a surrender in leaving it to God. You know, we surrender our right to control the issue. We surrender our right to engage the arguments. We surrender our right to take offense and argue because we leave it to God. Last week, we looked at Romans 12, living in humility, but it doesn't stop there, Romans 12. It goes much deeper. I want to read verses 17 to 21 to you. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. See, the main portion of this passage, it has a part that is ours to play and a part that is God's to play, doesn't it? We lean on him. We don't react the way this world does. We don't repay evil for evil. Two important guidelines appear in this passage. It says in verse 18, it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you. You know what that means? God recognizes that it takes two to tango. God recognizes, but... That does not mean we are not called to do everything that depends on us to bridge the gaps that we have between people. Maybe we've put the gaps between people. But we have a calling on our lives to do our part. And then we leave it in his hands. We leave it in his hands. And sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's not possible. But if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, we do everything we can to live at peace and we leave it to God. We leave it to God. See, we don't try to fix each other. We don't take revenge. We don't play God in each other's lives because this is his role. This is his thing to do. It's so important because we can't understand forgiveness unless we learn to surrender that right, unless we learn to kill the argument. See, the world operates like this. It rehashes the past, doesn't it? It keeps score. You know, I remember every wrong that you've done and I'm never gonna let it down. It keeps score, it digs up old bones, things you thought were long gone. We air our dirty laundry, right? We hold grudges, we spread rumors. This is the way of the world that we live in. But we are called to something better. We rest in him. We rest in his ability to fight this battle for us. We recognize that he is the judge, and I'm not. I'm not. And we live for an audience of one. It calls us to move in forgiveness with one another. So we do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world that create chaos and enmity between us. We live a better way. We choose a higher way. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says this. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Or insult with insult, but with blessing. Go a step further and bless those. Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. It's constant. Because to this you were what? Called that you may inherit a blessing. If we really want to follow the example of Jesus, we kill the argument. We put aside prejudice and the cultural norms and the way our world operates and we leave it to God. And the next thing is we have to move in power. We have to move in power. See, Jesus is our example. He gave up his rights continually, didn't he? I mean, he gave up his right when he became a man. He came down for us, he gave up his rights in a radical way and even when he was being accused, he was what, silent before his accusers that takes a lot. It's hard. It's not natural to us. It's not natural to me. I'm preaching to myself this morning. See, he embodied this principle, this concept called meekness. Jesus was meek. We're called to be meek. And this is one of my favorite word studies in all of scripture, this idea of meekness. Meekness. It's a term that praises Jesus, you know, that he was called meek, and he also calls us to be meek. And as Christians, little Christ, it should describe us, meekness. But here's the problem. You would probably, if you haven't encountered this word often, it's not a popular one in, you know, 21st century English vernacular, meekness. But if if you look at this, you probably look at it the way our culture does, that meekness is weakness. Meekness equals weakness. But this word that is used in the Greek is so complex. It's so complex. It has no real English alternative. It doesn't. So many of us associate it with mildness or weakness, but it actually suggests a state of being that is just selfless. It cares so little for what I can get out of a situation. It's the opposite of selfishness or self-centeredness because there is what Vines calls an inwrought grace of the soul. It must be clearly understood this kind of meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. Meekness is the fruit of power. It's not weakness, it's power under his leadership. It is power. It's not something that we can drum up. It comes only as we leave it to God, as an act of true worship and spirit and truth. We trust in Him and we're able to have peace and grace with one another. So let me say this, it's only by the spirit of God operating in our lives that we can live this way, as we're called to. We can't do it alone. But when we kill the argument, when we set aside prejudice, we get to move in power with the Spirit of God. And we invite the Holy Spirit to change us. You ever, maybe you've heard this term. Anybody ever heard this term? The best defense is a good offense. Yeah, anybody heard this term before? Maybe you're not a sports person. The best defense is a good offense. See, I think Jesus knew this. I think he knew this because he was constantly giving up all defenses and putting himself out there with no regard for how it turned out for him until it killed him. He was constantly giving up his defenses, but he came to be different, and we're called to be different. Romans 5, 20 and 21 in the message says this. Sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. Aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, and a life that goes on and on, a world without end. Aggressive forgiveness. See, we give up our defenses. We can kill the argument because our offense is better. Our offense is better. We take up the sword of the Spirit, we stand on His promise, and we aggressively forgive. We extend grace You know, we're called to be people of grace. This church is called Word of Grace. What does that mean? That means we aggressively forgive people because we were aggressively forgiven. Anybody else feel like you've been aggressively forgiven? I have done so many dumb things in my life. I deserve nothing, but I have been aggressively forgiven by him. Thank you, Lord. So we don't fight the way the world does, do we? We drop our defenses and we carry our offense the sword of the spirit, the word of God. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, sorry, 10, 3 through 5 in the NIV. This is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. We're talking about waging war. We're talking about arguments and strife. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Wow. Everybody say demolish. That's what we're called to do. We're called to demolish. What are we demolishing? Arguments in every pretension, every prejudice, every state of mind that our culture has drilled into us to take up arms against one another. We demolish that. We demolish that because our weapons are better. We don't need to defend ourselves, as Peter says. We don't need to because our weapons are better. We use our weapons not against one another, but for one another, destroying chains around our lives, setting people free. Unforgiveness, holding on to grudges with one another the way the world does, it'll eat you up, won't it? It's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That's what it is. When we hold on to offense, Guess what? The person it's killing is you. The person it's killing is you. So what do we do? We demolish arguments. We demolish pretense. We demolish strongholds. We don't play with the lies of the enemy. We don't bite on his bait. We destroy it with a reckless, aggressive forgiveness. The world says you screwed up because you're a screw up. That's the way the devil works, isn't it? He attaches shame to our sin. Every last one of us has sinned. That's what the Bible says. None of us are perfect, but the devil specializes in attaching that label to your life for eternity. You screwed up because you're a screw-up. That's what the devil says. That's what our world says. I will never let you live it down because I am keeping score. That's the way he operates. But we demolish that with the truth of forgiveness. You might have screwed up, but you are a child of God. You are blessed and highly favored aggressive forgiveness destroys shame and then healing is possible. Healing is possible. I want to tell you today, you might be sitting here, you might be thinking of somebody who you've got beef with. Healing is possible. Healing is possible for you. We are people of healing, people of grace and forgiveness because why? We have been so aggressively forgiven. We have inherited this mission to carry that forgiveness to others. You see, we cannot do this without that meekness, that fruit of power Meekness comes from the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Meekness comes from Him in us. Romans 8, 6, don't forget this, the mind controlled by the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Yeah. Now, I know we've gone through a lot of Scripture today, but can you see the momentum of Scripture as a whole? Can you feel the current of forgiveness that we're called to join in on. We're called to not go ankle deep in that current. We're called to not do it when it's okay. when that person sees eye to eye with me anyway. We're called to do it regardless. That's aggressive forgiveness. We're called to get into the flow. Can you see that momentum? The spirit who inspired these words, he is constantly preparing us to be agents of his forgiveness. Constantly. The second Jesus breathes on the disciples in John 20 and says, receive the Holy Spirit, the next thing he says is, whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. Translation, you're the ones who are taking forgiveness to your neighbors. You're the ones who are to overcome with our offensive weapons and drop your defenses. So, t- so many times we're just, we're holding on to that defense. Let me tell you why I'm right. Let me tell you why I did this. It doesn't matter. Like my dad used to say to me, drop it drop it. There's tremendous blessing for us when we choose to live this way and we become such a blessing to each other. The end of the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. See, he got into some touchy moments. She kept trying to bring up the arguments. He kept ignoring them. Guess what happened? The disciples and Jesus ended up staying there for two days and many were saved. Many were saved among them. The argument didn't matter anymore because true healing appeared. Jesus has appeared in our lives. True healing is available to us. See, I don't know about you, but I wanna live with that kind of impact. Because like Peter says, it's not, it's not if, but when people will speak out against you. Recognize it's part of the human experience and every last one of us in here with a pulse is gonna have those moments. But when that happens, we give up the defenses. We lay them down. We choose to move in power instead. We choose to fight with reckless forgiveness for one another. We choose to not hold on to those arguments and those offenses. So as we come to the table of the Lord today, communion, I want us to reflect on the word that we've read today. See, you might've come in today and had some serious beef with somebody in your life. You might've come in today and there's someone you haven't talked to in five years, 10 years because of an argument. And I know that some of those arguments go really deep. Some of those hurts go really, really, really deep. I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of it, but I'm calling you to consider the unflinching call of scripture on our lives, to lay it down, to move as an agent of reckless forgiveness. I'm calling you to consider what the word steps us into, to move out in forgiveness and openness and acceptance of others, to not play God in each other's lives and try and fix each other, but to say that is his role. I'm gonna do what Romans 12:18 calls, As much as it depends on me, as long as it's possible, I'm gonna do everything I can and leave it to God. I'm gonna leave the rest to him. I promise you, when you take aggressive forgiveness like this and you take steps towards one another, he shows up, that's when he can work. You're inviting him in and the Holy Spirit is with you in every step of forgiveness. He is longing to bring healing and renewal. So let's follow Jesus' example of meekness. Submit to one another in love, Go the extra mile. You're not doing it out of love for the situation. You can hate the situation all you want, but you're doing it out of love for Him. You're doing it out of obedience and submission to Him. John 17, Jesus prayed for you and I to be one, for the whole body of believers to be one as He and the Father are one. That's an incredible prayer, but so easily we cast it aside for what? For our defensiveness for our arguments. Let's no longer allow foolish things to divide us. Let's move as a community in grace that reckless, aggressive forgiveness. It's just as scandalous as Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. Because I don't deserve grace. I don't deserve it. But he gave it anyway and he gave it freely for us. How often do we really reflect on that? How often do we really reflect on the depth of his grace? Because if we did, we would realize how completely and totally forgiven we are and carry it into others' lives. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.